Welcome to Off the Record. I'm your host, Marika, and I'm a dietitian, nutritionist, and recovering perfectionist. Join me each week as I bring you raw and real conversations with inspiring men and women discussing matters in health and nutrition that are often swept under the rug. Sit back, relax, pour yourself a cup of coffee or a wine, and enjoy learning from conversations that help us to understand the messiness of what it means to be a healthy and balanced human. Hey guys, and welcome back to another episode of Off the Record. Today's episode is all about the role that the media and social media plays in our body image and also in our perception of health and what effects that has on our health, as well as what we can do about it. So um, it's a really interesting episode, and I brought Megan Bray on for this episode. Now, Megan Bray is a dietitian and nutritionist who specializes in non-diet nutrition and eating disorders. Megan is currently doing her PhD in the space of eating disorders and is incredibly skilled and knowledgeable in this area. So I feel very grateful to be able to have this conversation with such an expert in this area. Megan also has a lived experience with an eating disorder, so she is a great person to be having this conversation with. Um, And of course, a trigger warning for this episode, we are speaking about eating disorders. Hello and welcome to Off the Record, Megan. I am so stoked to be having this conversation with you today um, and also so early in our podcasting journey to have you on board. Um, So welcome. Thank you. I'm very, very excited to be here. Great. Well, we've got a juicy conversational topic today about the media and the role that the media plays in health and nutrition and um, with a particular focus on eating disorders and body image. Um, But first, could you tell us a little bit about yourself and um, sort of how you got into the line of work that you're doing? Yeah, for sure. So I'm a dietitian, just like you, um, and I work across a lot of spaces. So I work with clients in my own practice. I work alongside psychologists, other dietitians, and a psychiatrist where we spend our time mostly working with people with eating disorders, um, disordered eating, uh, and we have a bit of a focus on women's health as well. I'm also doing my PhD through the University of Queensland, and I'm looking at how we can better help people with eating disorders in a team environment, Um, because my real belief is that eating disorders need to be treated by an integrated team. So you'll notice that's what I do in my practice, and then that's what I do in my research as well. Um, So I've been in this field for about five years now, um, and I came to it. So I have a lived experience of an eating disorder. So a lot of people assume that that is why I worked in eating disorders when the reality is that I just wanted to be a health professional. Um, I don't like blood, so medicine <laughs> and nursing weren't an option. And that was exactly I did, my decision around yeah. dietetics too. I don't want to touch people. <laughs> Correct. Yeah, I was like, I don't really want to touch people. I don't like blood. Um, I didn't think I'd be well-placed on... Uh, like a gym floor, like an exercise physiologist. So I was like, I guess by process of elimination, dietetics sounds great. And I had also had a bit of an interest in it historically. But I think it was due to having an eating disorder experience, even though I was recovered when I was studying, there was part of me that was like, maybe I should just do a placement or do some research or just get a sense of what working with people with an eating disorder actually looks like. Um, So I did a research project as part of my master's and 
I just remember um, it was an inpatient ward where I had to interview people about their experiences of treatment. And, you know, looking back now, I know that being on an inpatient ward for an eating disorder is, you know, probably one of the worst times in your treatment, one of the hardest times in your treatment. And I walked into this room and this girl was sitting on the floor and just crying. And for whatever reason, it just felt very natural to go and sit next to her. And, um, you know, we eventually started drawing together and she started telling me all about her lived experience. And in that moment, I just was like, I actually think that I have to pursue this space a little bit more because it just felt really right, even though there was a part of me that thought, I'll just get this out of my system and then I'll carry on with my interest in other areas of dietetics. Yeah, absolutely. And was it um, through, I guess, potentially having not had that experience when you were going through your own personal eating disorder that that sort of then motivated you that you could have that impact with somebody, like you said, like sitting there on the floor and drawing with them? That's, I think, a really powerful way to connect with somebody and to start to even have the conversation around, you know, recovery and the next steps. And I assume that's not something that's, you know, commonly done in this space. Yeah, I think it was just, um, you know, unfortunately there is this idea sometimes that treating people with eating disorders is really hard and it's, and and people living with eating disorders can be quite misunderstood. And I think it was just in that moment that I realised, like, I get this. Like, I don't judge this person. I'm not confused. I'm not scared. I don't find it strange that this person is sitting on the floor, floor client crying. That makes complete sense to me. Mm-hmm. Um and, you know, to this day, I've really never met another cohort of people who are more kind and empathetic and resilient and witty as my clients. So I think it was actually the patients that I started to interact with made me certain that these were the kinds of people that I wanted to actually spend all day, every day with. Yeah. Oh, that's incredible. And so powerful for the people that you are working mm. with as well. Um, seeing as this episode is about media and the role of media in all of this, can I ask, what was your experience um, as somebody with the lived experience with an eating disorder? What was your experience of the media and did that have a role in the development or the maintenance of your personal eating disorder? Um, I think it certainly played a role. Um, we think of eating disorders as being you know, partially genetic, partially psychological and partially environmental. So people who go on to develop eating disorders will have more risk factors, but the media sort of sits in that environmental risk factor space. Um, And, you know, I know growing up, I actually feel quite grateful because it wasn't until high school that I jumped on Facebook and, you know, Instagram wasn't really so much of a thing. Um, There was no TikToks. Yeah, absolutely. So as much as I was comparing a lot to mainstream media and looking at magazines and you know, TV shows, and I guess there, you know, were some social media platforms back then. But I'm actually quite grateful for the fact that I was probably shielded from a lot more of that. You know, I think a lot of my comparison would have happened to people at school. And so I have a massive sense of empathy for people at the moment who are at school all day long and, or, you know, in their workplace all day long comparing to people in the real world. And then, you know, every other minute of the day, they have access to Instagram or TikTok where there's just hundreds of thousands of avenues for comparison. 
Yeah. And I think one of the things that I personally think is more damaging with social media as opposed to what you and I probably grew up, which was more mainstream media like magazines and television and like uh, sort of big celebrities is that with social media, there's almost like the barrier has been removed between them and us. And it's like, we're all, which in some sense is the, the power of social media is that we're all in this together. But it means that instead of, you know, like you and I growing up would have, you know, compared ourselves to, yes, our social networks and, and those people immediately around us, then the people that we are putting up on a pedestal are, you know, the big celebrities. And I think that we could see a bit of distance between, yes, of course we wanted to be like them and look like them and all of that, but we could see the difference in the layers, I think, between there. Whereas now I think when you go on social media, you have this expectation of, well, that's real and that's achievable and that's what I should be as opposed to potentially what the mainstream media used to be like. Yeah, for sure. Like I think back then there was a part of you that would think, well, this person, you know, is a multimillionaire and has an entire staff dedicated towards their hair and their makeup and their wardrobe. Whereas, yeah, now we're comparing to what feels like everyday people. So we think I should be able to, you know, what's wrong with me because I can't achieve that. But I think what we also kind of forget is the fact that, you know, people tend to upload their highlight reel or um, curate a image or like a representation of themselves to the world. So even though they might seem more um, relatable, we don't always know what's going on behind the scenes as well. Yeah. And that's something that I struggle with because I think that it's really hard because of course you're going to share the highlights in your life. Like that's what we sort of want to share and we want to do. So it's not that, you know, people shouldn't share those things. I think that we should be proud of, you know, our achievements and our highlights and our holidays and those sorts of things. It's not that we need to take away from that, but I think that we need to yeah, be looking at what we're consuming with a different lens of this is really a highlight reel and this is not a moment for comparison, but it's so hard not to. Yeah, definitely. Um, and I think too, you know, often we're sitting there, you know, in your PJs, like hair and makeup, not done, like maybe having a down day or whatever. And you're like flicking through this feed of kind of gorgeous people on their holidays. And, you know, we, I always think about taking a pause, you know, before we kind of buy into our thoughts and kind of like fact checking the scenario and kind of, you know, asking ourselves like, you know, am I really viewing this through, I guess, a healthy lens because we are so forgiven for maybe looking at it through that different, not so helpful lens. Yeah. So can I ask you, when you say you're looking at it through a healthy lens, for somebody who probably doesn't understand, like what does a healthy lens look like when you are on social media? Do you have any tips or strategies or things that you would suggest saying, um, you know, for people to say to themselves when they are doing that or are there things that you personally do when you are on social media or words that you say to yourself that help you put that healthy lens on it? Yeah. Like I always think of, um, you know, self-compassion and like the three elements of self-compassion is like a good starting place. Um, so I guess the first part of that is being aware of your thoughts. So if we just have thoughts running through our head that we never pause to take note of, we essentially have this chatter and this voice that we're letting, you know, dictate what we do without ever stopping to realize that we actually can take a step back from our thoughts. The second part of self-compassion is shared humanity or common humanity, which is the idea that like you are not the only person who has sat there in your PJs having a down day, looking at someone on social media and feeling like trash. And the third part is self-kindness. So what would you say to a friend or a loved one? And I 
honestly think if people in this world ran around talking to themselves as if they do a friend or a loved one, we would be so much better off because, you know, we always say the kindest, most caring, most empathetic things to others. And yet when you think about what's going through our own minds, it's often quite cruel um, and very judgmental and um, not not that healthy lens, I suppose. Yeah, no, I so agree with that. Um, now, you also work in non-diet nutrition. Could you explain to us what non-diet nutrition, for those who might not have heard the term or are a little bit confused by the term, because I think diet and nutrition for a lot of people goes hand in hand. So yeah. tell us about non-diet nutrition. Yeah, and I think, to be honest, there is a lot of confusion about non-diet nutrition out there. It's certainly gaining more traction, but even myself, when I kind of read what's out there, I think no wonder the average person is entirely confused by this. So I guess non-diet nutrition takes a really broad view of health. So we think about someone's physical, psychological and social health rather than focusing on, say, one aspect of that maybe a detriment to the others. So an example is like primarily we think a lot about physical health, but we don't necessarily think about how that might affect our psychological well-being or our capacity to com- connect with other people. So I guess an example of that um, in a clinic setting is like someone might come and they want to improve their diet because they have diabetes or they want to improve their performance in the gym. So when we're looking at what we're going to do with this individual, we're thinking about ways that it will kind of enhance all of those different domains, the physical, the social, and the psychological, rather than just looking through that narrow lens of physical health. Um, I guess I often sort of talk about it as non-diet approach is more additive than restrictive. Um, We think about what can we put into your diet and relationship with food rather than what we can take away from that. And I think it's really important because dietitians are so often known as like the food police and, you know, lists of what not to eat. And I find that incredibly frustrating because that is absolutely not an approach to nutrition that is necessary to improve health. In fact, I would argue that that actually gets in the way of achieving optimal health and well-being. Yeah, no, I totally agree with that. And I think that that's something that I hope is changing along the way. And I think the way that you're describing like non-diet nutrition is, I guess, the way that I view health is that mm. it's it's this holistic thing. And I, I kind of hate that word because I feel like it's been used yeah. so much <laughs> yeah. um, and so much in the wrong capacity, but there's no real other word for it where it's we're looking at the person as a whole rather than at, you know, their certain elements of them. So the way that they're eating or the, you know, the conditional disease that they might've presented with, it's about going, okay, what's going on with you, with your life? How is this interplaying with, you know, your mental health? And like you said, your social health and everything like that. So I think it's, it really is the way that we need to be looking at nutrition and health. Absolutely. Like I agree. Like I could not agree more that our entire health profession needs to move to that more holistic approach. I guess the other thing about non-diet dietetics as well and non-diet nutrition is that we typically don't use weight as like a marker of whether our work has been successful. And I know that can feel insane for people to hear because I think you know, I want to get healthier. I want to lose weight. Like that just kind of feels like it goes hand in hand. Um, 
So from a non-diet nutrition perspective, we're typically more interested in thinking about goals like improving your energy or improving your performance or helping your relationship with food, or maybe it's targeting kind of specific uh, biochemical or physiological markers. So whether someone has high blood pressure or, um, yeah, elevated blood glucose levels, we will target those specific things rather than saying, well, if you lose weight, that's going to be the most important thing here. And the reason I am really passionate about that is because when we look at the long-term science of weight loss, it's pretty unconvincing. Like we know that the majority of people regain lost weight within two to five years. And, you know, I get worried that when we're constantly putting weight on a pedestal as the most important goal, we stop people from finding these other health habits or health behaviors that are way more sustainable um, and actually have a much better impact on really tangible things like the energy or the performance. Because we know that weight probably isn't the best measure of health. Uh, It's all of those other factors that are way more important. Mm. And do you have any suggestions, and this might be a question beyond you, but like any suggestions on how we actually unlearn that when the media is telling us over and over and over again that our weight is the most important thing? And I think, yes, we are seeing improvements even in mainstream media around the messaging around weight. It's not great by any stretch of the imagination, but I think it's beginning to shift but the like prevailing message there still is that the way that you look, your aesthetics, your um, the number on the scale and your body fat percentage, essentially, your, the amount of fat that you carry in your body is directly related to your health. So how do we unlearn that as an individual who might have been shown, you know, these messages time and time again, not only through the media, but through health professionals, through their friends, their family? Do you have any suggestions for unlearning this? Oh, that's a big question. Uh, <laughs> that one was not on the script. <laughs> and like, I think that there is not one answer to that question. I think that, you know, we can target it from lots of different avenues. I think our research at the moment is primarily geared towards thinking through a weight-centric lens. So I think that, you know, more researchers need to get out there and, develop more and more studies that really do highlight the fact that we can improve all of these other physiological markers, our, you know, our mood, mental health, without focusing on our body composition or our weight. Um, Because I think, you know, what happens is the science or the research is geared towards that sort of weight-centric lens. So then you go to university as a doctor or a nurse or a dietitian, and you're learning that figure is bad. And so people who are then, I guess, in power when it comes to discussing health and well-being are giving that message. Mm. Whereas if we were taught differently, if we really leaned on the science that showed there is more than one pathway to achieving health and it doesn't necessarily have to include weight, I think we would start to hear a lot more people in health professions saying that. Um, I think the media... um, would then be likely to pick up on that message more. I think it's unfortunate because the idea that big equals bad is such a a sellable point. Um, And, you know, we live in a capitalist society where dieting is kind of like the perfect product in the sense that it typically fails. So ultimately people end up going back and buying diet after diet after diet. So we actually don't even live in a society that probably 
wants that message to be out there because all of a sudden businesses would be like, oh, I have to stop selling crap to these people. Um, So I do think, you know, the media would have a role in then sharing this message. And then the other thing I often encourage individuals to do is ask, well, how's that working out for me? Like I've been given this message my whole life of my body weight's the problem or eat less, move more. And where has that left me? Um, And often people will be able to go, yeah, wow, I've been on about 20 diets across my lifetime. What I've noticed is my weight keeps going up and up and up. I feel more confused about food than ever. So even though dieting might be the dominant narrative, that person might then be able to see that for them they need to take a different path. And that's mostly what I find with clients who come to work with me individually is they're like, look, I've tried this whole dieting thing forever and ever. I don't really like the idea of what you do because I still would like to lose weight, but I do acknowledge that this isn't working out for me. What's your lens on it? And then over time, they're like, wow, this is incredible. This is awesome. This has changed my life. But they had to come from that place of, oh, God, like how has this panned out for me before they were willing to take this sort of what feels a little bit alternative to mainstream. Yeah, definitely. And I think when it comes to the media, one thing that I always sort of encourage and like people to keep in mind is that ultimately we control what the media show and like not on a person by person, like, you know, what I Mm. click is not going to make the biggest difference to what news.com is publishing. But if we all collectively start to change what we are clicking on and what we're engaging with, the media is literally selling what is clickworthy. Like they're selling Absolutely. your attention. They're trying to capture your attention. So if we can try and communicate a different message, and like you're saying, like, yes, obviously science is what we need more of to sort of provide that stability around that conversation. But I think more importantly, it is about like creating connection and stories and, and um, I guess sh- sharing and celebrating the the alternative so that then we are shifting people away from clicking onto these things that are then driving more and more and more. So if I had one message to share with people, it's be careful what you're clicking on because essentially Absolutely. Yeah, you're you're driving more and more of this to come. And I even catch myself doing it sometimes because I, you know, you see something in your news and you I roll my eyes at it and I'm like, oh God, what are like what are they saying this time? And I click on it. I'm like, damn it, I just I just helped them. <laughs> absolutely absolutely. Like Yes, I was doing research for a specific diet that doesn't call itself a diet. And now I get ads for that oh my God. all of the time. <laughs> I think I know exactly what you're talking about. I got one yes. literally before I jumped on this podcast. Yeah. I went on to Facebook and I, I got one. Um, and that's uh, it's not about weight loss or something like, oh, I don't know, I can't yeah. remember. And then the next one that I saw that was an ad, it was um, how to make your morning walk a uh, fat burning something or I don't know, fat burning yeah. work, work, workout. I was like, can we just go for a morning walk? Like, yeah, does it have to yeah, be a totally. walk, workout? And sometimes if I'm feeling it, I will go through and, you know, say, I did not like this. I did not like this. Oh, and, yeah. you know, on my um, apps, because I then tend to see less of it. So mm-hmm. it is, it's like being conscious of the algorithm that works in the background. Like if you have clicked on that, you can undo it by saying, don't show me things like this. Um, and the algorithm like will over time correct itself as well but yeah absolutely I couldn't agree more like we do have the power as people and um you think about a lot of companies are shifting to promoting kind of more holistic 
habits rather than restrictive diets. I do think that's also where we need to be careful because sometimes I feel like it's a, you know, uh, I guess a bit of a ruse and it's like a diet in disguise. But for me, it's still promising that we are heading in the right direction. Yeah, I, yeah, I guess that's true. Is that we're we're talking about the right things, but yeah, sometimes it is a um a bit of a disguise of your yeah we are intuitive eating or we are body positive or we are you know whatever it is, but in reality, it's a whole lot of the opposite, which I think is the program that we're both speaking about that we're getting tagged yes. for. <laughs> says exactly yes, that. Definitely. Um, can I ask you then? So, what do you think uh, the impact of unrealistic standards that we see in the media is actually having on our health? Well, I think ultimately we just end up never feeling good enough. You know, like it feels like no matter what we do, there's always something we should be doing differently. And I think also what then happens is it sets us up for failure because we have these really, really high standards that the average person who might have kids or work or have fluctuations in mood and energy and motivation, like it just becomes entirely unsustainable for that person to stick with. So you end up perpetuating this cycle of tried that, failed, not good enough, tried that, failed, not good enough. And ultimately it can move people a lot further away from health behaviors. Um, I think, you know, that's why, and I know you do too, like really encouraging kind of achievable goals over time, because I feel like when people set themselves up for massive change, their lifestyle just can't sustain that and we need to be really careful of not setting ourselves up for failure yeah and I think also if you've got some sort of perfectionistic standards in there or tendencies in there as well it just sort of adds to it and you just end up giving up because you can't do it perfectly and literally nobody can do it perfectly like I've never met a human being in my life that is eating perfectly exercising perfectly has the perfectly clean house does you know all of the things that does not exist but it's so much pressure that it puts on us that we actually ultimately don't do anything because, oh, well, I can't train six times a week and absolutely slaughter myself in the gym. So why would I show up at all? Yeah, absolutely. And like, you know, I do work with a cohort of people whose perfectionism is wild, you know, like next level perfectionism. And I see lots of people who attempt to do that. And then six to 12 months later, they have a complete and utter mental breakdown and have to take a total pause from life in order to pick up the pieces. And I always say like, we've only got a hundred percent to give. If you're trying to give a hundred percent with work, a hundred percent in fitness, a hundred percent in diet, a hundred percent in study, like it's, that's just not possible. Like you will burn out. Um, and I think, you know, our society really needs to put a lot more focus on just being good enough as yeah, opposed being to average. being perfect. Yeah. Yeah. You know, that's another one that always gets me is everyone really always wants to be above average. I'm like, do you know what the definition of average is? Like, it means that most of us are going to be that. And <laughs> for some reason we consider it like a, a, a negative. Like if someone was to say, oh, you're average at that. Or I'm like, well, yeah, that would make sense that I'm only average at most things in my life. It's how it's defined. Yeah, and I think you actually raised a good point there. And I'm a massive perfectionist and recovering perfectionist on that. I, yeah. I like to think I'm working on it. But, like, <laughs> you think as a perfectionist, you think, well, I'm a, I am am above the average and I, I can do this. And, I like, you know, yeah, that, that makes sense for everybody else. But, like, that's, that's not yeah. for me. <laughs> yeah, I think yeah. the whole thing that you said as well that really resonates with me is that for most things you actually are going to be average. And, yeah, cool, if you have one thing that you want to, like, you know, push further and everything like that, but you can't do that 
in every area of your life. And I remember I read this, I think it was um, James Clear from Atomic Habits. He said about like um, an analogy of like having four gas burners going. If mm-hmm. you have them all going at full ball, like you're going to run out of gas pretty quickly. Absolutely. Whereas you might have one that's on high and then the rest are on quite low and you're going to have so much more sustainability on that. And those gas burners are going to change. So, you know, one might be family, one might be your career, one might be your health. You're going to turn up and down those dials depending on what's going on in your life. And if, you, if you're trying to go with them all, you, you're literally going to run out of gas way too quickly. And I'd never resonated with something more. I was like, oh, yeah, and I guess it's like then also like what's the point? Like what's the point in being the quote-unquote best at everything if you look back at your life and think, right, I didn't take a single second to truly enjoy life like I wasn't present. I know um, psychologists sometimes do an exercise with clients around imagining like your 80th birthday or writing your eulogy um, and like who did you want to be present? What did you want to be remembered for? And I think it's such a beautiful exercise because we get so caught up in thinking I need to earn this much or eat this way when the reality is when you think about who you want to be surrounded by at your 80th birthday, it's usually not, you know, the people who published your paper or, <laughs> you know, your social media followers. Like you tend to say, oh, my friends and my family and I want to be remembered for being kind and present. And I just think how do we get so disconnected from yeah. that? Yeah, absolutely. And um, so change the topic a little bit. In terms of um, social media, I wanted to ask you a little bit about um, the current movement towards um, body positivity and how that's being portrayed on social media. I would love to know, like, yeah, what are your thoughts and feelings behind this? Um, do you think it's helping? Do you think it's adding to confusion? What's What's your thoughts on the body positivity movement? I mean, Overarching thoughts are that I'm very pleased that it's now kind of a more dominant idea. Um, I think it's super important that as a society we move to a place where we value all bodies irrespective of weight or shape, size, ethnicity, ability, gender. I think that's incredibly important. I do think that the message, just like non-diet nutrition at times, can get quite confused. Um, You know, it's this I people tend to believe that body positivity is this idea about always feeling positive about your body. And that's not actually Mm. what it's about. It's about kind of valuing your body no matter what state you're in or no matter the weight, the shape, the size, everything I just said. It's about respecting all bodies. And it's actually a movement that was developed for and by people living in a larger body. Um, and I guess where I take real issue is when people who are already the dominant body become the biggest, loudest group talking about body positivity. And don't get me wrong, like I understand the irony of you and me sitting here yeah. talking about this <laughs> as thin, white, able-bodied, you know, individuals. So listeners, take this as your cue to go and follow people in larger bodies, people of colour, people with, you know, um, varied backgrounds and experiences because I think as much as I'm pleased that it is entering mainstream, I need, I think we need to make sure that we don't forget where body positivity came from and what it's actually about. Yeah, why it was created, who created it, yeah. and, yeah, the purpose behind it. No, I completely agree. And in terms of social media, do you think the – and this is a really challenging question, but do you think um, 
the responsibility lies on, again, like we were saying before with the mainstream media, do you think the responsibility lies on the consumer to be, I guess, being aware of who they're following, what they're following, or is it in the creator that um, sort of holds the responsibility around the messages that they're um, sending? And what would you say to, like, for example, your clients? Is it about them sort of being aware of what they're consuming or is it, you know, we need to be going upstream and going creators can't be creating this content? Mm, I think you know, it would be both, ideally. I think in an ideal world, you would be able to censor specific content that is, and I know um, Instagram does do that on some level. Like if you look up hashtag anorexia, it will come up with a warning that says, you know, are you sure you want to look at this? It has distressing content, you know, seek help if you need. So I think there are certain things there. But what I always say to my clients is, As much as I would love to think that Instagram or TikTok or mainstream media or content creators are going to take responsibility for this, the likelihood is that they're not and that therefore it's in the individual's power to unfollow, to curate a feed that is pro-recovery or pro-health at every size or pro-non-diet dietetics or just follow cats and landscape (laughs) photos like dogs. They're cute also. Like it's, you know, it's about thinking about the kind of content that makes you feel worse about yourself. And so, yeah, I think it, as much as I'd love both upstream and kind of downstream approaches, I think at the end of the day, it rests on the individual because only you know what's triggering for you. Yeah. And that's such a challenging thing to, um, I think for a lot of people to recognize is what is actually triggering, because I don't think with social media that it is always obviously triggering. It's just like the, I guess, ingrained messages that you see over time. You know, if you're spending two to like, I think two hours is like the average time that people Mm. are spending on social media. And I think that's like 15 to 17 year olds as well. So God knows how much, you know, social media time we're spending these days (laughs) and (laughs) um, as adults as well. But if you're looking at this content 24-7, it's not necessarily that you're going to, and yes, this does happen where you look at a post and you're like, wow, that's that's not healthy for me or that's triggering for me. But a lot of the time it's not necessarily triggering in that like direct sort of way. It's more that it changes your perception of normal and changes your perception of what is realistic and what is healthy, um, which is the more challenging thing because it's so unnoticed. Yeah, Absolutely. You know, you're right because it's like you just start following. Um, so I guess I recently got back into CrossFit, which is something yeah. that I haven't done in a while. And so, you know, you start following Olympic lifting pages or like people, athletes who are going to the CrossFit Games purely because I'm like, oh, how cool. I'm getting back into the sport. I really enjoy it. And it hasn't been long before I've watched my feed start to get kind of taken over by specific bodies. And I had to actively be like, well, when did this happen? Because it's like you say, the algorithms start showing you more and more. And, you know, you know, you're actually ticking this over in my head right now. Like I, I don't know what that's done to my perception of bodies, but I imagine if I don't get on top of it over time, that could be really problematic. And so it's probably worthwhile all of us like doing that pause and step back and thinking, what is the majority of content that mm. I see? Because, and how is that potentially going to affect me over time? 
Yeah, absolutely. And I think one of the things that like I found really helpful when I used to work with clients and sort of explain to them the impact that social media has in that sort of subtle way is if you walk down the main street of your town and undress everybody back down to their bikinis or their underwear, you know, which is unfortunately what we see most of online. Oh, yeah, totally. <laughs> we see the whole of them. Um, but if you did that in the main street of your street, and I say don't do it in Bondi because that's a complete anomaly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's apparently like superstars and beautiful people only. But any average, you know, town, city around the world, and you undressed everybody there and thought about what their body shape and size was. And then compared that to what your Instagram feed was showing, your Mm. body shape and size, and even like your explore feed, you know, what the algorithm is showing you there, there is such like disparities, I guess is the word that I'm using, is between what you would actually see in real life. So be it at your school, at your workplace, in the middle of your, you know, shopping mall compared to what you see online. And it makes you really, I think, stop and go, oh, wow, like, that totally. is actually having an impact on what I think is normal. Yeah, it's a great, it's a great, I guess, exercise to do is, um, yeah, go to like your local shopping center. Yes, not in Bondi or places like that, <laughs> and just yeah, look at every fifth person. You know, take a random sample of people, and you will notice that by and large, people do not look anything like the people on Instagram or this. I don't know quote-unquote thin ideal or beauty ideal that we have. Um, And so I think sometimes we get so caught up in looking at our phone and our feed and thinking, oh, I don't look like that, and then not look at the world around us when it's like, oh, actually there's heaps of people who are super diverse around me all day long. Mm. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And in terms of the role of social media, what are your thoughts on, um, so we've obviously covered a lot with body image, but what are your thoughts on people sharing um, like health messages online? And have you seen in your practice, so this might be messaging around like, you know, how to recover from anorexia or um, even like how to eat healthier or clear your skin and these sorts of messages. Is this something that you've seen in your practice with your clients that is, you know, leading to issues or is this not so much of an issue as the whole body image um, conversation? No, it's definitely an issue. And I guess, um, yeah, I think the big issues are not knowing where the content is coming from or like people not necessarily fact-checking that individual's kind of qualification or background. So if we're thinking about how to eat healthily or, you know, clear your skin, you know, there's a lot of that stuff out there or improve your gut health, I guess, is a big one. Um, for eating disorders because we know that 98% of people with an eating disorder have a functional gut disorder and largely that relates to them not eating enough and yeah. not eating a we wide variety of foods. that we need to talk about that. <laughs> yeah, 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 totally. Lock it in. You know, whereas they're then following some person that says don't eat dairy and don't eat gluten and I'm like, oh, God, protocol. what have we done? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, you know, I do see that a lot. And I guess the other one is... Um, sharing your own recovery story. And don't get me wrong, I'm a massive advocate for lived experience. I am I want people to be more open about the fact that they've lived with an eating disorder and not even, like I am open to people sharing that as they're recovering, not just waiting until they've recovered because I think for too long we've kind of expected people to be fully recovered before they speak up. But I think, you know, particularly for eating disorders, recovery is so nuanced and so individualized, you know, and again, we're often just uploading bits and pieces of our recovery. And I don't think that's necessarily always helpful. Um, And particularly when you're still struggling with an eating disorder, like eating disorders 
compare. Like that's one of the primary things that an eating disorder will want a person to do. And so if someone is talking about behaviors or, you know, posting photos of their body, that is going to dilute any other potentially positive message that they have. So it's something I definitely talk with my clients about, like, sure, you know, listen to people with lived experience, but just, you know, perhaps be conscious of whether they're really thinking about how that content will hit you, you know, because I think sometimes people are creating because they want to tell their story as opposed to creating because they really have considered who this would be helpful for. And I think there becomes a real difference in the type of content created when that's the case. And I think that I guess summarizes what, like what we're saying here is that I guess the takeaway from this whole conversation is that we need to actually step up as consumers of, um, I guess we're both also creators of of content as well. (laughs) As you know, every individual is a consumer of content online. We really need to be, um, putting a really critical lens on everything that we're consuming and considering, you know, is this helpful for us? And that's not to take away from the fact that the person who is sharing it might have fabulous intent. They might be Mm -hmm. an incredible person. They might be, you know, selfless. They might be giving. They might be educated. They might be kind. But if the content is not sitting with you and not resonating well with you or is triggering you or is in like in the whole like subtle way leading to negative effects on you, it's your responsibility then to choose, okay, I'm not going to engage with, I'm going to unfollow this person or I'm going to, you know, report the content if you think it's, you know, at that level. Um, But I think, yeah, we do need to sit back and sort of go, okay, we need to, we need to take some responsibility here, unfortunately, because there's no other way around it. And like I said, like, it's not that the person is deliberately trying to harm or mislead or anything a lot of the time. They actually think they're doing the right thing. Um, but I feel like that a lot of people feel a lot of, I don't even know if shame, I don't think shame is the right word, but like they, they shouldn't unfollow somebody because it's well mm-hmm. intended. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I disagree with that. Yeah, totally. I always think like the best person to look at for me is me. And yeah. so like only I truly know what's going to keep me on my path to health or well-being or, you know, mental kind of wellness. So it is in our best interest to be looking out for ourselves. Yeah. And I think not doubting yourself in when you get a message from yourself that says, oh, that's not helpful for me is to trust that and yeah. follow through. Cause you can always go back and follow and re-engage Absolutely. and like, they're always there. Absolutely. And look, I know that I have you know, unfollowed colleagues, for yeah. example, like, and, you know, I, like there was a part of it's like, oh, should I say that out loud? Yeah. Like, <laughs> <laughs> don't worry, don't worry. Yeah. So like, you just got to do what's right for you. And I know there's, I guess, the other side of that where it is really important to be open to the experiences of others and hearing alternative viewpoints but I think the problem is that they're so infiltrated with this content like it's constant that stuff's going to weigh you down a lot if you're open to it 24 7. Yeah no definitely oh that is so incredible um thank you so much Megan for all of your wisdom and insight I think we have all learned a lot from you and I think that yeah what we can take away from this is really that message around um 
being careful with what we consume and being really critical of the the type of content that we're seeing online and and knowing that we have the power in not just our social media but in mainstream media as well to I guess change that and even though it might seem like a really small thing but by not engaging in content that is sort of pro um what's even the right word pro like unhealthy really like <laughs> Pro diet, pro weight, pro um, all of these messages that are ultimately affecting our health. If we don't engage with that, eventually the media will follow through in changes because they're looking at things that you are going to click on. So if we can start to change what we're clicking on, then the media is eventually going to follow through. So thank you so much, Megan, for your time today. Thank you for having me. I really enjoyed it. And I think we're going to have to talk about um, eating disorders and gut issues at some point because that, me being, having worked in gut stuff for so long, um, I think we have a lot to cover there. Yeah, I, I uh, didn't expect to be doing as much of this work, but it's very, very common. <laughs> well, having worked in IBS for so many years, I didn't expect to be doing as much eating disorders yes. work as well. Yeah, totally. <laughs> totally. Yeah, totally. All right. Thank you, Megan. Thanks, Marika. Thank you so much for tuning into today's episode. If you love the episode, I would so appreciate you sharing on social media by screenshotting and tagging me at Marika Day. You can also continue the conversation offline or online still, but on our Facebook community. And to find us online, you can just search in Facebook for Off The Record Community. Um, and we would love to continue the conversation there. Uh, please subscribe on your favorite podcasting platform. It means the world to me and leave a rating and review. As always, if you have any suggestions for guests that you would like interviewed on this podcast or topics that you would like covered, please send me a direct message on Instagram at Marika Day again, and we can see what we can do. Have a great week, guys, and chat to you.